0: And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you will have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. The Son of God, the Word of the Lord.
1: The weeks leading up to Christmas uh, are what Christians have historically called the season of Advent. Advent literally means arrival, specifically, the arrival of Jesus Christ. Uh, So during the season of Advent, Christians remember and celebrate the arrival of Jesus Christ. But in order to do that well, you have to have an understanding of who Jesus is. Um, You know, uh, your response to the arrival of Jesus Christ is determined by what you believe about who Jesus is and why he came. And that's true of anything. So for instance, there was a movie that came out last year. Interestingly enough, it was called Arrival. Uh, If any of you saw that, the whole plot of the movie is about the arrival of these alien spaceships that come and they dock themselves all over the world. And the big uh, question of the movie, of the characters in the movie is, why are they here? What do they want? Are they here to attack us? Are they here to help us? The aliens are trying to communicate with the people on Earth, but nobody can understand what they're saying. So they bring in a language expert, played by Amy Adams, to come in and try and help them understand what it is the aliens are saying. Because the big question of the movie is, the big problem of the movie is, they don't know how to respond to the arrival of the aliens unless they understand who the aliens are and why they've come. In the same way, we can't possibly know how to respond to Jesus Christ unless we understand who He is and why He's come. And friends, that is a deeply contested question in our culture. And that's where Mary's story really helps us, because this passage that we just read is, is the beginning. It's the first part of one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's called the Annunciation. And it's all about how this angel Gabriel comes to Mary to announce to her the arrival of Jesus Christ. And this story really gives us a wonderful picture of what it's like to come to faith in Jesus. This story is a picture of what it was like for Mary to come to faith in Jesus. Because when we understand the message that Mary heard, we'll be able to respond in the same way that Mary did. Now, As we look at this story uh, and we see Mary's response, one of the things we see is that there's a progression here. It takes place uh, over the course of this conversation. So for that reason, there's so much to see here, we're actually going to spend the next three weeks looking at this um, response that Mary had to the message of the angel. Uh, And this week, we begin by seeing that Mary, she doesn't just begin with complete understanding and wholehearted, uncompromising acceptance of everything the angel says to her. No, she begins with doubt, but it's a very particular kind of doubt. And I want to begin looking at that this week by asking three questions that we see in this passage. The questions are this, what was the angel's message, what was Mary's response, and what does it mean for us, all right? What was the message of the angel, what was Mary's response, and what does it mean for us, okay? First, what was the angel's message? The very first thing we need to understand, if we're going to understand Mary's response, we have to understand what was the angel actually saying to her. Uh, Who is Jesus, in other words? That's the big question. The angel begins by telling Mary that she's going to have a son, but not just any son. Says that this is going to be the son of the Most High. Now that means God. This is going to be the son of God. Now, in those days, son of God could refer to a few different things. Um, Calling somebody a son of God could have just meant somebody that had a special relationship with God. But that's obviously not what this angel means because he goes on to say immediately that this son will sit on the throne of his father David, the great King David, the great historical King David. That means that this son of God is going to be a king, but not just any king. He says... He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, forever. And just to make sure that Mary gets the point, he repeats himself and says, of his kingdom, there will be no end. So who is this? He's a son, but not just any son. He's the son of God. He's a king, but not just any king. He's an eternal, immortal king. But the angel goes even further than that with this really mind-boggling message. Uh, In verse 34, Mary asks how all of this is going to happen, and we're going to get back to that in just a moment. But for now, here's what the angel says to Mary about Jesus. He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, that word overshadow is a very important word. It's a word that was actually used to describe the the Shekinah glory of God that filled the tabernacle in the wilderness during the Exodus, Uh, the glory of God that filled the temple in Jerusalem when they built it. That word overshadow is a word that's used to describe the glory of God that when the glory of God filled the tabernacle, when it filled the temple, nobody could go inside those places because the glory of God was so thick. What this angel is telling Mary is that the very glory of God himself is going to fill her womb and that the child to be born of her will be the very glory of God, the very holiness of God in earth, in human flesh. That's who Jesus is. This is a heart-stopping, mind-boggling, jaw-dropping message from this angel about the identity of Jesus. But he even begins to give us a little bit of a hint about what Jesus came to do. Because right away, the angel also says, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, the name Jesus literally means the Lord saves. It's not just who he is, it's what he came to do. Do you understand what all of this means? Christianity is a religion unlike any other religion because Jesus is a being unlike any other being. And I understand, and by the way, I completely support the fears and the concerns that people have when they hear people make absolute, exclusive, religious, and spiritual truth claims like that. I'll actually get back to that in just a moment. But but none of that erases the fact that on every page of the New Testament, we encounter a Jesus who is not just a human being, but a divine God. Not just a, a human teacher, but the Savior of the world. Because what he came to do was to save the world from evil sin and death. He is unlike every other religious leader the world has ever seen. Because every other religious leader, whether it's Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius, whoever it is, they all came saying, here's what you must do to connect to God. Here's what you must do to achieve salvation for yourself. I have come to point you to the way. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus came saying, I'm the one who's going to connect you to God. I am the one who's achieving salvation for you. I'm not just here to point you to the way. I am the way. Now, you know, nobody ever put this more brilliantly than C.S. Lewis. In his little book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this. He said, The popular idea of Christianity is that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher and that if we only took his advice, we should establish a better social order. It is quite true that if we took Christ's advice, we should soon be living in a happier world. But you need not even go as far as Christ." If we did all that Plato or Aristotle or Confucius told us, we should get on a great deal better than we do, and so what? We have never followed the advice of the great teachers. Why are we likely to begin now? Why are we more likely to follow Christ than any of the others? Because he's the best moral teacher? But that makes it even less likely that we shall follow him. If we cannot take the elementary lessons, is it likely we're going to take the most advanced one? listen to this, if Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. There has been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A bit more makes no difference. Friends, Jesus Christ is not just a human being who came to give us more good advice about how to live a good life. He's the God of the universe who came to live the life that we should have lived, and to die the death we should have died for us. That's who he is. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message of this angel, and it's the first thing we see here. But secondly, uh, we also see what was Mary's response to this message. We're actually going to look at her response over the next three weeks. But as we do, we see certain stages that she goes through in her progression to faith in Jesus. You know, when people come to faith in Jesus, it it always looks a little differently. There's no one-size-fits-all model for coming to faith. For some people, it happens in a moment. Uh, For other people, it takes place over the course of many years, We need to be careful, therefore, because there is no one-size-fits-all model to what it looks like to come to faith in Jesus. But when we look at Mary's experience here, when we look at her response, we see that there are certain elements, there are certain stages that people have a tendency to go through in that process. And the first stage that we see in Mary's experience right here, uh, as I said earlier, we could call this first stage doubt. But it's a very particular kind of doubt. Uh, In fact, I would call this doubt, exploratory doubt. What does that mean, exploratory doubt? Let's take a look. Um, In verses 28 through 29, it says that the angel came to Mary and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, the very first thing that happened to Mary is it says she was greatly troubled. Friends, that is important. She was greatly troubled. One of the first things that happens when you become a Christian is that something comes into your world, something comes into your life, something comes into your experience, and it troubles you. It disturbs you. It challenges you. It it shakes you up. And it could be different kinds of trouble. For some people, it's personal trouble. So, for instance, maybe... You encounter trouble like depression or loneliness or addiction or anxiety, or maybe it's trouble with a relationship or money or work or family or health or career. Maybe it's uh, trouble with things like addiction or anxiety or things like that, but something comes into your life and it shakes you because maybe all of your life, you've always lived and you've always been able to face whatever it is has come your way, but now for the first time in your life, something comes into your experience and you realize that you're not enough for it that you don't have the resources for dealing with this particular trouble. And it shakes you, it disturbs you, it challenges you. There's personal trouble. Other times it might be something like personal failure. So for instance, you know, maybe you've always prided yourself on being a certain kind of person. Uh, on living a certain uh, standard or level of life, of moral rectitude. You, um, you think that there are kind, uh, kinds of things, certain things that you would never do, and then all of a sudden you find yourself doing something you thought that you would never do. And it shakes you. It shatters your perception of yourself. It troubles you. It disturbs you. So there's personal trouble. There's personal failure. Uh, another kind of trouble that comes into people's lives at this stage is what we could call intellectual trouble, um, You know, something happens in the world that challenges the worldview that you actually have adopted. So for example, many people would say that uh, orthodox Christian belief always leads to exclusion, oppression, and marginalization of people that don't believe those truths. That is a worldview, that is a position, intellectually speaking, that many people Hold. But what do you do with that position, for instance, when you look at the families of the people who were murdered at Mother Emanuel AME Church in North Carolina two years ago? One by one, family member after family member got up and very publicly, lovingly, mercifully forgave the person who had killed. Their family members and said that they were not just commanded but empowered by their Christian faith to do so. What do you do with that? Listen, when you have a worldview that tells you the world is a certain way, but then something comes into your experience that tells you your conclusions are wrong, that challenges your worldview, you're faced with a choice at that point. You can either hold on to your old worldview in spite of new evidence to the contrary, or maybe you adopt a new worldview. That's what happened to Mary. She met an angel who came with this troubling message that she was actually going to give birth to the physical incarnation of God in this world. I would say that's a troubling message. And it's really interesting what she did next. You know, not only was Mary greatly troubled, that's the first thing. The very next thing is it says that she tried to discern. That is a very interesting phrase. It's one word in the original language. And the word literally means to use logic, to to think or to reason very carefully. You know, a lot of times people say, you know, religious people, they're just so gullible. They're just so willing to blindly accept um, things that have no basis in reality. They turn off their minds and they refuse to be rational. But that's not what Mary's doing here. She's not getting less rational. She's getting more rational. And that really shows up, by the way, in verse 34. The angel has just told her that she's going to give birth to this divine king. And what does Mary say? Does she say, oh, how wonderful. Of course that makes perfect sense. No. She has doubts about it. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? You know, a lot of times it's easy to think, well, ancient people were less intelligent than we are. They were more gullible. They were more willing to believe stupid, stupid, silly things because they didn't have access to the kind of knowledge that we have nowadays, things like, you know, science and technology and things like that. They were just so, they just weren't very intelligent. But listen, not only is that an intellectually snobbish thing to say, it's just not true to historical reality. I mean, Mary's no fool. She shows us right here that she knows perfectly well that virgins do not give birth to children. In fact, listen, Mary would have had just as many reasons to doubt the virgin birth as you or I would. It's, n- it's just not true to say that ancient people were more gullible than we are. For instance, ancient Greeks had a worldview that said that, um, that the physical material world was dirty and corrupt and that the spiritual world was good. Therefore, to Greeks, one of the dominant cultures in that day, the idea that God would have taken on a, a physical human body would have been repulsive to them. Very close to that idea. Or if you look at Eastern worldviews like Hinduism or Buddhism, those worldviews would say that, that the physical world is an illusion. That the goal is not for God to come and inhabit the physical world. The goal is for us to escape the illusion of the physical world. Again, very closed off to the idea that God would come and inhabit physical reality. Every single ancient culture... Every single culture of the world, in fact, has huge obstacles to believing in the virgin birth. And listen, none more so than Judaism. Of all the cultures, of all the worldviews in the world, Mary, of all people, would have had the biggest obstacles to believing in the virgin birth. Because to a Jewish person like Mary, God is completely other, completely holy, completely transcendent. The idea that this God, the God who's so holy, they don't even say his name, the idea that that God would take on a physical body and become a human being would have been utterly blasphemous. And therefore, if you, oh modern scientific person, find it difficult to believe in the virgin birth, Mary had more reasons than even you would. See, Mary had reasons to doubt. And yet, one of the most beautiful things we see here is that she expresses her doubt. So notice, as I said, this is a very particular kind of doubt. Um, If you go back earlier in the chapter, one of the most fascinating things about this chapter is this same angel, Gabriel, came earlier in the chapter to a man named Zechariah and told him that he and his wife Elizabeth were going to give birth to John the Baptist, even though they were senior citizens and even though his wife Elizabeth had been barren her whole life. Uh, another very troubling, very astounding message. Now, Zechariah has doubts as well. But when Zechariah expresses his doubt, the angel strikes him mute and says, just for that, you're not going to speak until the child is born." So what's going on here? In the one case, the angel rebukes Zechariah for expressing his doubts. But when Mary expresses her doubts, the angel encourages her and gives her more information. What's up with that? What's going on here? The answer is that there are different kinds of doubt. Zechariah doubt is what we could call cynical doubt. Cynical doubt is doubt that's not really looking for an answer. It's already made up its mind. It's already shut off, it's closed itself off to the possibilities of anything contrary to its already preconceived assumptions and expectations about the way the world is. It's already made its mind up and it's not open to other alternatives. So for instance, I mentioned just a bit ago that many people, rightfully so, get very concerned um, about any claim to have absolute religious or spiritual truth. They say those kinds of truth claims always lead to oppression and exclusion and marginalization of people who don't share those truths. Now, those are very valid concerns, and I would affirm those concerns, because the truth is, that happens. But very frequently, um, people will propose a solution that says, well, then we should avoid all absolute religious truth claims. Instead, we should say that all religions are equally true, and that no one religion um, is more true than any other. In other words, we should always doubt absolute religious truth claims. Now, that view has the appearance of being very open, very tolerant, and very inclusive. But if you think about it, that view itself is an absolute religious truth claim because it simply says that my view of religious truth is the true one. Listen, I want to affirm the motivation behind these fears and these concerns. Because there is a danger in making absolute truth claims. But you don't escape the danger by trying to avoid making the truth claims. It's impossible to avoid making truth claims. All you can do is is wrap up your truth claims in wishy-washy language. But you cannot avoid making truth claims. There's no such thing as avoiding truth claims. Because the reality is that you can never doubt one thing without simultaneously believing something else, right? I mean, it's that belief in something else that actually makes the doubt possible in the first place. Cynical doubt, Zechariah doubt says, I've got my truth and I'm not really open to any other alternatives, even when I'm confronted with evidence to the contrary. But then there's a kind of doubt that we could call exploratory doubt. That's Mary's doubt. Exploratory doubt is doubt that's it's, it's actually looking for more information, It's far more open, far more humble, far more willing to have its assumptions and expectations and preconceptions challenged. That's Mary's doubt. You see, something came into her experience that she couldn't account for. Something came into her experience that troubled her. It shook her. It challenged her. But instead of shutting off her mind and refusing to explore it, she actually opens herself up to it and she says, okay, tell me more. Help me to understand this. I want to know more about this. Friends, exploratory doubt is the beginning of faith. It happens when something comes into your life, something comes into your experience that troubles you, it shakes you, it disturbs you. But instead of shutting off your mind, you actually open your mind, you actually begin to explore and ask questions. The message of the gospel is that God himself came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ in order to save the whole world from sin, evil, and death. That's the gospel, And Mary's response to that gospel begins with exploratory doubt. Something has come into her experience with a troubling message. The gospel is a troubling message when you really think about it. It's troubling her. It's troubling her worldview. But she doesn't shut off her mind. She opens her mind, and she allows her expectations and her assumptions to be challenged. That's where her journey to faith in Jesus begins. And friends, that's where it begins for all of us as well. And that leads to our last point. We've seen what was the angel's message and we've seen what was Mary's response. The last thing we want to look at is, what does that mean for us today? What are the practical implications for us? First of all, if you're a Christian here this morning, um, you've already been practicing a lot of patience um, because admittedly, this whole sermon is really more geared towards, towards people who are maybe in the beginning stages of, uh, of exploring faith in Jesus Christ. But there are important implications here for you if you're a Christian, even if you've been a Christian for years. And one of the biggest ones is this. This shows us that we should be very patient and understanding and, and humble um, with the doubts and the questions of people who are coming to us with questions about Jesus Christ. We should be very patient and understanding with people's questions and doubts. The reason Christianity gets such a bad rap is because, frankly, Christians oftentimes give people reason to doubt. There really is oftentimes a harshness and an intolerance in the lives of Christians towards doubts and questions that people have and that they express about uh, the truth of Christianity. But think about this okay, if a supernatural, sinless, holy heavenly angel can have this kind of patience with a flawed, weak, finite human being like Mary, then how much more should flawed, finite, weak human beings like you and me have patience with others? Isn't that true? Friends, of all the places in the world, the church should be the most open, the most understanding, the most willing to allow people to come in and have their questions, have their doubts, have their concerns, and be willing to entertain those things but so frequently the church is not willing to do that why is that it's because of this very frequently people are very harsh they're so harsh and intolerant with people whose beliefs differ from theirs because anytime you root your identity in something other than jesus christ whenever that thing is threatened whenever that thing is attacked your very source of identity is going to be threatened and attacked and you will attack back and by the way, this is true not just for Christians, this is true for anybody. Whatever you root your identity in, whether it's, um, you know, a racial identity or a political identity, or maybe you root your identity in being a good person, you know, I'm the certain kind of person who does certain things, or maybe you root your identity in, in your relationships or your career or work or money or family or your grades, whatever it might be, whatever you root your identity, all of those things are threatened They're all radically vulnerable. None of those things can withstand attack. They're all radically vulnerable. So whenever those things are attacked, your very source of identity is attacked and you will attack back. There is only one thing in the entire universe that can give you a source of identity and a sense of personal security that is unassailable. And that one thing is this. It's if you know that the God of the universe died on a cross for you, and that the very core of your identity is that you are a sinner saved by the sheer grace of God. That is an unassailable identity because it's, it's an identity that can never be threatened, never be attacked, because it's not based on you or anything you do. It's based on who Jesus is and what Jesus did for you. And by the way, notice something about that. You can't get that identity if Jesus is merely a human being. Only a divine Jesus can give that kind of an identity to you. So when people attack you and people threaten you and people criticize you and when, when, when people say horrible, awful things about you, instead of getting insecure, instead of, you know, hitting back, you can say, Yeah, so what? <laughs> it's true. In fact, I'm far worse than you think. You don't even know the half of it about me. But none of that stuff matters. Because my identity is not wrapped up in who I am or what I do. My identity is secure. It's wrapped up in who Jesus is and what he did. That is an unassailable identity so that when people attack you and criticize you, there's no need to be threatened. They can't get at the very core of your identity. It's an unassailable identity, and it should make you the most humble, the most patient, the most gracious, the most compassionate person there is. So first, Christians, we should be far more humble and patient and compassionate towards people with their doubts and their questions. But secondly, for those of you here this morning who are not yet Christians, or maybe you're just beginning to explore faith in Jesus, um, Mary's response is an encouragement to you too. And, and, And the first way is this. Her response encourages you, first of all, to be honest with yourself about what your faith assumptions really are, because you've got them. You have them. Even if you don't think you don't, remember what we said, you can't doubt in one thing without simultaneously believing in something else. Every single one of us has assumptions, faith assumptions, about the way the world really is, and and many of them are unprovable assumptions. We all have them. Are you willing to be honest with yourself about what those faith assumptions are? Many people don't even like to say that, that they have faith in anything. They will not admit it. Are you willing to admit it? Are you willing to be honest with yourself about what your faith assumptions are? But secondly, Mary's response encourages you to be courageous enough to allow your worldview to be challenged, to to actually explore your questions about Jesus, to be honest and humble enough to allow your worldview potentially to be challenged, um, to have your expectations and your assumptions challenged. You know, are you willing to do that? It's easy to scoff, It's easy to mock. It doesn't take any intellectual work at all to do that. How do you know that the Jesus you've rejected is the real Jesus? Are you sure? Because there are a lot of different Jesuses out there. You know, there's a lot of conversations nowadays people are rejecting the white Jesus. I think for good reason, but there's a preconception about what Jesus is, and they're saying, well, I reject that Jesus. Or people have the idea out there that, you know, that... Science-denying, gun-supporting Jesus. And they reject that Jesus. That's not the real Jesus either. How do you know that the Jesus you've rejected is the real Jesus? Only if you do the hard work of finding out who Jesus really is. Only if you listen to the angel's message will you find out who Jesus really is. The real Jesus blew away Mary's expectations and, and preconceptions. Are you willing to allow the real Jesus to blow away your preconceptions and assumptions about who he is? Next week, we're going to start looking about what happens if you say yes. But as we close this week, do you want to know how you can make that beginning? Do you want to know how you can begin to engage what what we're calling exploratory doubt? Not cynical doubt, not scoffing, not mocking, but true honest, humble, exploratory doubt. The key is to see that Jesus has already done everything necessary to make it possible for you to do that. What do I mean? You know, when Jesus came to earth, um, he led a life of constant rejection. He led a life of constant mockery, of constant derision, and having people scoff at him and ridicule him. That was Jesus' life. You know, um, remember something, by the way. Remember that if the angel's message is true, then this Jesus really is the God of the universe in human flesh. And yet this God of the universe did not come to earth and say, believe in me or I'll smite you. He did not say, mock me (laughs) and I will crush you. He said, no, I will be smitten to the ground in order that you might believe in me. I will be mocked in order that you will be able to come to a true apprehension of who I really am. Because before he was crucified, you remember what the Gospels tell us, that the Roman soldiers who crucified him, before they let him out, it says they put a crown of thorns on him and they mocked him. They spit on him, they beat him, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! Even in the midst of their mockery, they were unknowingly confessing the truth, the reality about who Jesus is. Friends, when they hung him on a cross, it says that all the people who walked by, they looked up at Jesus and they mocked him. They derided him. They scoffed at him. And they said, if he really is the son of God, if he really is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and then we will believe in him. And yet Jesus clung to the cross. And in clinging to the cross, Jesus was willing to be mocked in order that you might be able to come to a truer apprehension of who he really is. Jesus was willing to die on a cross in order that you might be able to believe in the truth about who he really is. Friends, ponder that. Let that sink into your heart. Let that challenge you. Let it change you. But lastly, if you're a Christian here this morning, what does all of this mean for us? Let me suggest this. Do you want to know how you can grow In patience and grace and compassion yourself towards others who may not believe the same things you believe. Remember that on the cross, Jesus Christ looked at the people who had put him there. They looked at the people who had nailed him to a cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus was patient and humble and gracious and compassionate towards people who not just disagreed with him, not just differed with him over, you know, a few theological fine points. He was gracious and compassionate and patient towards people who hated him violently, stripped him naked, and nailed him to a cross. If the Lord of the universe did that for you, can't you do that for someone else? If your identity really is rooted in what Jesus did for you, then you will be able to do what Jesus did for you for others. Dear ones, whether you're a Christian here this morning, or whether you're just beginning to explore faith in Jesus. Mary's response to this angel has a lot to show us. When you encounter Jesus as he really is, then you'll be able to respond to Jesus as Mary did. Let's pray.